0: Do you believe God has a plan? Come well, on, you can answer. Do you believe God has a plan? Okay, okay. Now here's the harder question. Do you believe that God's plan may include suffering? You know, we love to quote the Bible in Jeremiah 29:11, where the Lord said, For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, to give you a future, and I hope we love to quote that verse, but have we forgotten that God also purposes suffering to bring about his will? I believe that the people of God today, especially the American church, being as prosperous as we are, I believe that we need a shift, a drastic shift in perspective We need a perspective that keeps God's providence in view. Uh, We defined providence last week. And so if you didn't take it down then, you might want to now. Here's here's our definition for God's providence. It is God's sovereign control of everyday life to accomplish his eternal plan. So providence is God's sovereign control of everyday life to accomplish his eternal plan. Plan. So here's the reason that's important. When your life takes a sharp, unexpected turn, how do you respond? When someone that's supposed to love you turns on you, betrays you, stabs you in the back, how do you respond? Do you? Hold a grudge? Are you angry with God? When you've been falsely accused, maybe slandered publicly, how do you react? When you have the opportunity to get revenge on someone who's wronged you, to make them feel what you felt, do you take it? The reason these questions matter is because they determine. Whether or not we see life through the lens of God's providence. You can endure difficulty, endure hardship, even the offenses of others, if you understand that God is sovereignly in control of everyday life to accomplish his eternal purposes. Joseph dealt with all of this and so much more. He handled it all with, uh, you'd have to say, like some kind of superhuman integrity. He's a great example for us. But one thing we've learned as we've been studying through this particular sermon series, True and Better, we've learned that he's not just an example. He's actually meant to point us to someone greater. The true and better Joseph, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate suffering Savior. So grab your Bibles, if you will. We're going to finish the book of Genesis today. I told you this was a series where we're going to see Christ in all the Bible. And we've been on a journey for several weeks now. We still haven't made it out of Genesis. I promise we'll pick up the pace. Uh, But Genesis just so rich with so many beautiful things. We couldn't uh, couldn't skip through. If you'll find your place in Genesis 45 before we get there. I just want to summarize to lead us up to that point. Okay Genesis 45 and I'll ask you to stand in a moment. Joseph. Joseph was the beloved son of his father, Jacob. Jacob loved his wife, Rachel. He also had Leah, and they had many children. But Rachel's first son, the 11th son of Jacob, was a boy named Joseph. And of all his sons, Jacob loved Joseph the most. He favored him in every way. (laughs) Jacob made for his son a coat of many colors, right? You remember the story maybe. This super colorful coat, which uh, really helped him stand out from the rest of his brothers. Which wasn't all that helpful. One day, Joseph was sent by his dad to go check on his brothers. And at the end of that long journey, he found himself at the bottom of a pit. And he was at the bottom of the pit because his brothers were jealous and angry and hated him. They resented Joseph for his father's love. They took him and they threw him in a pit. And from the bottom of that pit, Joseph could hear them laughing and enjoying a meal while ignoring his screaming for help. Joseph was the beloved son, but he was a hated brother. They took the coat that his father had given him and devised a plan to make it look like Joseph had been killed by an animal. They doused it in blood. Rather than kill him, they sold Joseph. They sold their own brother as a slave to an Egyptian ruler named Potiphar. And Joseph's life took a drastic turn. Forced to leave his father's side, he gave the sweat of his youth to building the house of another man. Joseph served his master faithfully. God blessed everything he did. Everything Joseph touched, it flourished. His master noticed that and kept elevating him up in service, giving him more and more responsibility. But Potiphar's wife also noticed how handsome Joseph was and how everything he touched was blessed. And she was attracted to him. And Potiphar's wife made a pass at him. She tempted him. She seduced him and asked him to come to bed with her. Now, Joseph um, maintained his integrity. He resisted temptation. He ran, but she grabbed his clothes, but he escaped with his integrity. Joseph's clothes made for a, a good source of a piece of evidence for when she would falsely accuse him. She she claimed that he had raped her. And as she screamed out, he took off and ran and she had his clothes and he was, I don't know, maybe naked. I don't know. So, guilt, it just looked like it was an easy open and shut case. So, wrongly accused and unjustly punished, Joseph is thrown into prison. Another drastic turn. And Joseph is a rejected servant. Another sharp turn in his journey. But even in prison, God gave him great favor so that everything he did was blessed. And it wasn't long. Before the warden of the jail took notice. Elevated him up to where he was put in charge over all the other prisoners. Now listen, I don't know if you catch this, but if you track his lifespan, here's what we know. Ten long years Joseph's been in prison. In the darkness of the dungeon. Then the king's cupbearer and his baker were thrown into prison. And were appointed to be with Joseph. One night they both had dreams. And God had given Joseph the wisdom to interpret dreams. So they asked him, hey, you know, I had this crazy dream. What do you think it means? The cupbearer's dream. Joseph interpreted it. It meant that he was actually going to be reinstated to serve in Pharaoh's house again in three days. And the baker, I suppose, hearing how great this dream was. He shared his dream. And Joseph said, well, your, your dream also is going to come true in three days. You will also be lifted up, but it's because you're going to be hanged by your neck. It's going to be the end of your life. wasn't good news. Both dreams came true. And Joseph had asked the cupbearer before he was reinstated. He said, if you'll just please remember me when you get back to your post, if you'll just tell the Pharaoh there's a man in prison that.'" He shouldn't be there. He's he's been there a long time and he's innocent. Will will you remember me? But Joseph was forgotten. Two more years. Until the Pharaoh had had a dream and no one could interpret it. All of his wise men, everybody tried, but nobody was willing to try, actually, because they they just didn't know. And finally, cupbearer said... I actually know a guy who can interpret dreams, but he's in prison. So they called Joseph up, summoned him in Pharaoh's dream. Joseph knew. Pharaoh told him his dream. It's actually really cool how Joseph responds. If you look at the details, he actually says, it's not in me to tell you your dream. It's a strange way to respond. But Joseph immediately said, but the Lord knows and he'll tell you. And he told him of seven years that were coming of great abundance. There's going to be more crops and more. Our, our, our animals are going to reproduce and multiply in great ways. It's going to be a blessed season. Seven years of abundance followed by the worst famine the world has ever seen. Seven years of famine are coming and many people are going to die. And Joseph told him, he said, here's what you need to do. You need to raise up a man to lead this time, this season. You need to raise up someone who will store up and then distribute when the time comes. And the Pharaoh said, well, I can't think of a better man than you. And Pharaoh lifted him up, elevated him up to be the prince, to be second in command. No one greater than Joseph in all of Egypt other than Pharaoh himself. So Joseph was, over, uh, was appointed to oversee this operation. Second only to the king. Now Joseph is an exalted savior. The years of plenty went by. And Joseph prepared and stored up food. But then the famine came. And people from all over the world came to Egypt just to buy food. Just to survive. And finally... Someone's coming in the distance. Guess who it is? It's Joseph's brothers who threw him in the pit and sold him in slavery. They come to buy food rations because they're starving. Joseph, 17 years removed from these brothers now, elevated to a prince, wearing the Egyptian outfit, speaking Egyptian language. He recognizes them, but they don't have a clue who he is. Can you imagine the emotions in Joseph's heart? The brothers who betrayed him, those who should have loved him, who sold him out. He now has an opportunity as a man of power. What's he going to do? Grab your Bibles. I want you to stand with me and read with me from Genesis 45. Let's read the first eight verses. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with me. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Lord, you are sovereignly in control of all of life. Sometimes we cannot see it. Sometimes we're so blind to your providence that we get caught up in the emotion of a moment, the feeling of betrayal, the the hurt of disappointment, the depression that comes. We, We get lost in the emotions of the moment. Lord, give us clarity today to see your providence, your sovereign control. As we look to the life of Joseph, Lord, we want to lift up Jesus. We want to see our Savior who suffered and died on our behalf so that he could save us. Stir our faith today through your word. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So this story is amazing. And we've only kind of tipped it. We haven't finished the story here. So many amazing things to see through the life of Joseph, and our first impulse usually is to talk about how he's a great example for us. We can learn all kinds of things like faithfulness, devotion, how to serve um, a master that's not a good master. We can learn about how how to trust through difficulty, how to resist temptation. You could learn especially how to forgive those who have deeply wounded you, right? I mean, these are great things we learn from the life of Joseph. But as great an example as Joseph's story is, there is a greater purpose that should be our first point of focus. We've come to know this truth. The Bible is mainly about God. It reveals who he is and how he intends to save. So even Joseph's life is pointing us to Jesus. I want you to consider this for a moment. Joseph was beloved by his father. What do we know about Jesus? Jesus is the beloved, right? He's the the only begotten son of God. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. John chapter one says that Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him. Joseph was betrayed and sold. Jesus was betrayed and sold also for a bag of silver by one of his trusted friends. Joseph was a slave Jesus came not to serve, but to be served. Joseph resisted temptation when Potiphar's wife came for him. Jesus was tempted in every every way, yet without sin. Joseph, wrongly accused and unjustly punished. Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, wrongly accused and crucified on our behalf. Joseph, Highly exalted to save the lives of many. Jesus has been highly exalted as the resurrected king. And he will save anyone who comes to him. Do you see it? Joseph is pointing us to Christ at every turn. Jesus is the true and better beloved son. He is the rejected servant. He is the exalted savior. The life of Joseph patterns the life of Christ. It's both suffering and glory. You know, the story of salvation, as we started this whole series, we began it in Luke 24. And in Luke 24, Jesus has died and he's just resurrected, but no one has seen him yet. And he takes this walk with two of his disciples who have left Jerusalem and they're headed back to Emmaus and they're so discouraged, they're so disappointed. And Jesus begins uh, in Luke 24, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken to you. And then he says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory? Do you see the theme of suffering and glory? Jesus teaches the same thing in the upper room, that same chapter with his disciples. He says it was necessary for Christ to suffer and then rise from the dead. Peter's going to teach this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. He's going to teach us that salvation came to us through the suffering of Christ and through his resurrected glory. So this is the theme, and we're seeing that pattern in the life of Joseph. So if all the Bible is telling us who our God is, then we should ask this really basic question. From the story of Joseph, who is our God? Who is our God? He is the one who is working all things, even suffering for the glory of his name, for the joy of his people and for the salvation of the lost. And listen, listen to what we just said. Our God is the one who is working all things, even suffering for the glory of his name, for the joy of his people and for the salvation of the lost. I want you to think about something really quick. Faith. Hebrews 11 1 tells us what faith is, right? It's it's the assurance or the confidence in things not yet seen, right? Right. It's it's things you've yet to see. So faith is somehow able to believe on the front end what hindsight proves on the back end. Are y'all tracking with what I'm saying? So when you get past the event, sometimes we say, well, hindsight is what? 2020. So you have clearer vision when you get past the moment of what has happened. You're able to look back at it and go, now I see, right? But faith is actually on the front end of that where it says, Lord, I believe you even though I don't see it. I'm believing you're going to take us through this moment, dark as it may be, hard as it may be, that on the other side of it, there's something I'm going to stand and I'm going to go, ah. now I now I can see. So faith believes what hindsight proves. Someone of great faith will truly believe the promise of God before they see its fulfillment. I want you to get a contrast for a second with um, the thief on the cross next to Jesus and say Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, who had walked with him through all of his ministry. Watched him die. So the thief on the cross. Is looking over at this man. That he's barely met. A man whose body is totally. Beaten to a pulp. Unrecognizable. Bloody. Wounded. Crown of thorns. Just looks like a total mess. And this thief on the cross. Somehow looks over at him. And in faith. Says remember me. When you enter into your. What? Kingdom. Kingdom. Somehow he looks at this bloody dying man and goes, that's a king. Whereas Thomas, after Jesus has resurrected, he shows up in the upper room with his disciples. And Thomas is looking at the resurrected Savior. And Jesus goes, Thomas, you still don't believe? Come here, put your hands. Touch me right here. Touch me right here. Oh, now you're going to believe. Right? Thomas needed hindsight. The thief on the cross had faith. Now, I don't know about you, but many times in my life, I struggle on the front end to believe. And in the middle of the dark moments, I have a difficult time trusting that the Lord is going to take me to a moment where hindsight's going to prove he was there all along. If you don't have that kind of radical faith today, grow into it. Grow into it by recognizing the amazing providence of God. Quick story. When I finished my seminary training, I'd gotten this master's degree, had the you know, shingle on the wall, real proud of myself. Moved to Tampa, Florida to plant a church. Bad news. It failed. Didn't go well. It was very hard. I felt defeated. I felt like an utter failure. I'm supposed to know how to do this, right? I was devastated. Here I am, late 20s, master's degree, unemployed from a failed ministry. Moved back home with mom and dad. That was bad for both of us. living in their basement, feeling depressed and defeated and like a failure. The Lord had a plan. It was in that season that I went to a little coffee shop in Jacksonville. I sat down to have a cup of coffee, and this little barista came over and served me my coffee. And I thought, hmm. And I met the woman who would become my wife and the mother of our 17 children. (laughs) Here's what I see now is that what looked like failure to me was God's providence in the moment. And much of life feels that way. It's almost like there are seasons where we need hindsight to to sort of strengthen the lack of foresight. Is this making sense? You need the back end in order to see better on the front end. So open your eyes today to see God's work in the ordinary stuff, even the hard stuff of life. And he's working. This is what we call providence. He's working in the everyday to bring about his eternal plan. So what was God's eternal plan in the life of Joseph? Well, I would say at least these two things. At least these two things. Number one is to preserve the lives of the covenant people. Do you see what Joseph, he, he, he had hindsight on what God had done. He said, I can see at this point now that God sent me here to save your life. You guys betrayed me and I thought I was a victim the whole time. But now I'm seeing that God put me here to save your skin. This is hindsight. It's a new perspective. What we know is that God had promised a a son is coming Right? Genesis Um, 3.15, the serpent had tempted Adam and Eve and they failed. And then God curses the serpent and says, your offspring is going to hate her offspring. But one day, he, her son, one of her sons, is going to crush your head as you bite his heel. Well, that was a promise of a coming redeemer, right? But in order for that promise to be true, it has to be one of her offspring, her son's. Well, when we track her offspring, we're all the way down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And now where do we go from here? And what we learn is that the son who will save does not come through Joseph. Isn't it crazy? 30% of the book of Genesis is devoted to Joseph's story. And yet Joseph is not going to be the grandfather of Jesus what well we are getting a glimpse of God's providential care to work the details to fulfill his promise some people may think that there is a God like there's a God he exists he's out there somewhere but he's not intricately involved in my life that's called deism and here's what you should know that is not the God of the Bible We have a God who cares about the details, who is with us through it all, even though, listen, even though we are not the main character of the story. When you read Joseph's life, you can't help but know he's not the main character. He's not even in the lineage of the main character. But we get 13 chapters devoted to this guy. Jesus is not coming through Joseph. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the lion of who? Judah. Judah. Well, Judah is the one who sold Joseph into slavery. Oh, but Judah had a heart change. By Genesis 44, Judah was the one who said, No, 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 no. Take my life instead of Benjamin. I can't bear to see my father grieve again like he's been grieving. take my life. And Judah foreshadows a substitution that will come through his own lineage. So the first big reason is to preserve the lives of the covenant people. God put Joseph where he was to save the lives of his promised people. But secondly... It's to pattern the life of the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, to pattern his life. We've already talked about it, but Joseph's story is more than just events. It's more than just history. It's a type of Christ. There's far too many parallels to just miss it. Joseph is meant to point us to Jesus. One one commentary I was reading this week said that there's 108. It actually listed 108 parallels from Joseph to Jesus. 108 After I read them all, he said, there's way more, but you're probably tired of reading by now. (laughs) And I was. (laughs) Joseph's life is meant to show us how God uses suffering to accomplish his purpose. I want you to consider this. Let's just use this foresight, hindsight reality. And let's work the story backwards and see if it helps us to see God's providence. Maybe you would ask this question. Well, how did, how did Joseph get to be the provider for all of Egypt and all the world? How did, he, how did he get into that position? He's Hebrew. Like, how did he get to be the provider for Egypt and all the world? And your friend might say, well, I mean, he was, he was exalted from prison. To the palace. He was, you know, from prisoner to prince. It's a beautiful story. And you'd say, well, well how'd that happen? He'd say, well, he had the, the gift of dream interpretation. Say, Why does that matter? And how'd that help him get from prison to the palace? Well, Fa- Pharaoh had a dream. Well, how'd they, how'd they know he could interpret dreams? Well, he had interpreted The dreams of two prisoners while he was there, the cupbearer and the baker. You might say, well, how did they get in prison? Well, they had committed a crime against Pharaoh. Well, how did Joseph get in prison? friend would say, well, um, he was wrongfully accused of rape by his slave owner's wife. Yeah, what? He was a slave. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was a slave. He was he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. Are you kidding me? What? Who does this? Why would they do that? Well, um, because Joseph was the favored son of his father's favorite wife. <laughs> Jacob had more than one wife. What? Yes, actually, Jacob. Um, The deceiver was tricked by Laban into marrying Leah first, and then and then Rachel. And yeah, they had. had, Well, how did he get tangled up with Laban? Well, um, so Jacob. Let's see. Jacob um, stole the birthright and the blessing from his older brother Esau. Are you tracking? Because we could keep going. And this is how hindsight, when you look back at the story and you start seeing the details, you have to say, only God, yeah. only God could do this. Amen. It's his providence. Joseph's brothers, when they came to Joseph and Joseph finally maybe took his his little uh, Egyptian hat off, took his robe off, he says, I'm Joseph. His brothers didn't have the faith in the moment to see that God had providentially worked and they were afraid for their lives. So Joseph helped them to see God's providence. And I want us to see two truths, two keys that unlock God's providence in this story and how they will help us, I believe, in our lives. Quickly, here they are. Joseph had gained... A radically God-centered perspective. A radically God-centered perspective. Look back at Genesis 45. And I want you to see something here. It's beautiful. Verse 5. Joseph says to his brothers, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me. Now look at that. Joseph said to them, You sold me. God sent me. It's a radically God-centered perspective. His, his perspective of the events of his life had become so God-centered, he even could see the, most, the deepest, most heinous kind of betrayal of offense as something God had orchestrated. You sold me. Can you imagine the, the depth of hurt? And pain you'd have from your own brothers. I mean, to trade a human being, your brother, for a little bag of silver. Joseph's probably saying, my my life is not worth more than a little bit of money. Joseph could have let all these years build resentment and a root of bitterness and hatred in his heart. Some of you know probably exactly what that's all about. But instead, Joseph sees their evil in light of God's goodness. The pain that they had inflicted, God's providence included. You sold me. No, 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 no. God sent me. In Psalm 105, when the psalmist is writing a history of the people of God and he's writing that history to the glory of God. This is the way the psalmist says it in Psalm 105 verses 16 and 17, writing about Joseph's story. The psalmist says, when he summoned, when he, God, when he summoned a famine on the land. And broke all supply of bread. Now, just be clear. Who did that? Who did the famine? Who caused the famine? Come on. Come on. Come on. When he summoned the famine and caused all the bread supply to run out. Who did that? We need to know that. What else did he do? Verse 17. He had sent a man ahead of them. Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Even the psalmist is reflecting back on the story to the glory of God and saying, God brought a famine. Oh, but God prepared a savior. God sent Joseph, who happened to be sold as a slave. That was the means to God's ends. Joseph's slavery was the means of God's sending, and Joseph had come to realize it. So he had a radically God-centered perspective, and then secondly, a radically Grace-filled posture. Flip over a few pages in Genesis to Genesis chapter 50. His brothers thought that um, Joseph was only sparing their life because their father was still alive. And when Jacob died, when Israel died, the brothers began to fear for their lives. They were scared to death that Joseph, now that the covering of a common love was gone... That Joseph's going to step in and, and, and kill him. And he absolutely had the power to. But because Joseph saw the hand of God and not just the hands of evil men, he was radically grace filled. Would you look at Genesis 50 verses 19 through 21? The brothers had come. They fell down face first before him, which is a fulfillment of a dream. Jesus or Joseph had at the very beginning. And then here it says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? What is he saying there? I'm not your judge. It's not my place to judge you. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And then he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I think if Joseph had acted out of vengeance in this moment, we would probably understand. We would probably read the story and go, I mean, they did have it coming. But although he could have killed them in this moment, Joseph blesses them instead. Wow. Now, church, this is the good news. Listen, although he could have killed them in justice and judgment, he blessed them instead. And Joseph said to them, what you meant for evil, God meant For good. Here's a portrait of the gospel. They meant to kill him. But God meant to save his killers. And in the same way. At the end of his earthly life. Jesus hanging and suffering on the cross. Crucified. And even the soldier who drove the nails in his hand bowed his face and bowed his knees before the cross and said, Surely this man was righteous. What we see is that the righteous one died at the hands of sinful men and for the sins of those same. Men. They meant to kill him. They did. And he meant to save his killers. This is the beauty of the gospel. His death. His blood. It's on our hands. Because we are sinners. And as sinners, we are his killers. But the good news is this. He suffered and died to save his killers. And the brothers that he could judge and destroy, he died to save. Oh, sinner, turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin and trust the Savior who suffered to save you. He is now glorified and will one day return for his people in all his glory. We will all everyone bow the knee to him. Then choose this day to bow the knee to him as your Lord and your Savior. And then to you, suffering child of God. You are not alone in your darkness. In your prison, you are not alone. In your suffering, you are not alone. He is with you and he means it for ultimate good. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. So look through Your pain with foresight, with faith, through the lens of God's providence, because there's hope in every hurt. There's purpose in all of our pain. God means our sufferings for good. We know that he promised it in Romans eight. For believers that he's working all things for good. So I encourage you today, pray for a shift of perspective. Enlightened by the goodness of his providence.